dismissed at this time. Those who will remain in the sanctuary, if you would please flip over to Leviticus 19 in your copy of God's Word, Leviticus 19. For those of you who were feeling a little warm in the sanctuary this morning, uh, just want to let you know, hopefully that'll start to settle. One of the four thermostats was set on 78. So, so here in a minute, that ought to come down just, just a little bit and help out some. So Leviticus chapter 19. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I'm the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods, for I am the Lord your God. Now when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that, it, so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten. Excuse me. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten uh, at all on the third day, it is an offense and it will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, uh, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard, You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord uh, your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all the night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in the judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of cattle, nor shall you sow in your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of mixed material together. Nor if any man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has in no way been redeemed nor given her freedom, there shall be punishment. They shall not, however, be put to death because she was not free. He shall not bring his he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall also make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin, which he has committed and the sin which he has committed. He will be forgiven him. And when you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, and you shall not be eaten in the fourth. All of the fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you are to eat of its fruit, and its yield may increase for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat anything with blood, nor practice divination, nor soothsaying. 
You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot, so that the land will not fall to harlotry and the land become full of lewdness. You shall keep my Sabbath and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. And you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. And when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurements of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances to do them. I am the Lord. Let's pray again. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the challenge that it brings to us. Father, thank you for um, the way that you point to your sovereignty and to your glory and to your authority by over and over again in this text declaring that you are the Lord, our God. Father, I pray this morning as this text drives us toward holiness, declaring that we are to be holy as you are holy, that we would see and come to understand in Christ what that means. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want us to see from Leviticus 19, Jesus, our holiness. This is the second of three times in the book of Leviticus that the phrase, you're to be holy as I am holy, appears in the book of Leviticus. And it's quoted and cited in the New Testament frequently. And depending on the context that we have in the New Testament, sort of determines the context of which passage from Leviticus this is being used. And so what we also have here, though, in Leviticus, aside from the call to being holy as God is holy, is the essence of what is known as the two great commandments. The first part of Leviticus 19, where there's a declaration for us to be holy, are some indications about how to properly worship God, how to not have idols, how to have no other God beside Besides our God. And, and so there's this, this calling in the first section. And then it's kind of sprinkled through the rest of Leviticus. Of how we are to love God. And if you'll recall. And we'll go there in a minute in the New Testament. That there are two great commandments. The first. Hear O Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. With all of your heart. With all of your soul. With all of your mind. With all of your strength. And that's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. But it is sprinkled in throughout Leviticus and other places as well. And then Jesus says, and the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is a direct quote here in Leviticus 19, verse 18. And so this chapter really is sort of a springboard to the New Testament idea of the two great commandments. The two great commandments. Jesus said, listen, all the laws fulfilled in these two great commandments. Love God and love people. And how does that look here? How does that look in this text? So let's see here in Leviticus 19, we're going to kind of run through some of the ways you love God and some of the ways you love people 
according to Leviticus 19. And we'll just kind of see how we're doing today. Okay. This is just a, a little check in our spirit to see how we're doing on loving God and loving people. All right. So at the beginning of this text, it says that we're not to have any idols. Now, most everybody just gave themselves a check in the box on that one because you don't have the little statues at your house and you didn't sacrifice a goat to some sort of, you know, wilderness demon or anything before you came to church today. But idolatry is a little more robust than that. If you gave yourself an instant check that there's not any idolatry in your life, I would encourage you to pause, do a little more self-reflection. Uh, you'll probably trip over a couple of idols along the way as you do that. And so just wanted to throw that out there. Now, in this first section, there's also some things about keeping the Sabbaths. There's some things about how to make sacrifices correctly and, and when to eat them and when not to eat them. There's actually right here. It's, it's very interesting. Be holy as I am holy. Hey, the kids who are usually not paying attention, I just want you to tune in for just a second. And then you can go back to not paying attention. So tune in just for a second. Be holy as I am holy. And the very next line in verse three, every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. Very first thing. So like we're having a whole chapter on holiness And there's stuff in there about idolatry and there's stuff in there about inappropriate relationships and there's stuff in there about how to do sacrifices. And there's all kinds of stuff in here. There's there's stuff about social relationships and how to engage people who are foreigners when they come into your land and how to help people who are needy and poor and how not to be greedy. There's all kinds of stuff that just sensibly falls in the category of being holy. Very first one. Honor your father and your mother. In the New Testament, I want to kind of go to an aside. I don't chase a lot of raps. I want to chase one right here. In the New Testament, when Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he talks about family relationships. And there's that beautiful passage about husbands love your wives, wives respect and submit to your husbands. It's a great thing. Used at tons of weddings. I use it at the weddings I usually do, at least make reference to it. And then it starts talking to mothers and fathers and how they should be toward their children, not provoking them to wrath. And then it turns to the children and it says, and children, you need to respect and honor your parents. And what we have throughout the New Testament is a reminder that it's the first commandment with a promise. And the promise is this, you honor your father and mother that your life may be long on the earth. Someone sent me this morning from Proverbs 19. I will not name the guilty so that they will not be uh, embarrassed. But dear couple here in the church, been having conversations with them about the struggles of raising older kids. Because that's kind of the time where the shift away from reverencing Mother and father tends to be more pronounced. And they sent me a passage from Proverbs that talked about disciplining your son, but not having a spirit in you to kill him or not desiring his death. 
Children, honor your father and mother, for it is the first commandment with a promise that your life may be long on the earth. Now, we usually try to make that proverbial. Yeah, you know, you honor your parents and God will bless you with long life. No, no, no. There were actual laws in the Old Testament that if, pa- if kids were disobedient to their parents, parents just stone them to death. Aren't you glad we live in an age of grace and the dispensation of Christ? Amen? Amen. And so kids, hey, they just got to like, dude, he just said my parents could stone me. Yeah, hey, listen up. If you want to be holy, and this goes for grownups too. If you want to show, per this text, that you're being holy, one thing that you do is you reverence or honor your parents. Even if they're wrong, even if they're not right, even if they're belligerent, even if they're unbelievers. Listen, this is something our culture has forgotten. There are institutions that God has endowed with respect and authority. Even if those who are occupying that institution are living in it in an incorrect way. And the institution itself requires those who are holy to reverence and honor the institution, even if the occupant of the institution is being disobedient to the things of the Lord. And our world has completely forgotten that that's part of what it means to be holy. But what if my parents are acting crazy? You still honor the institution of parenthood. What if my president is acting crazy? You still honor the institution of government authority. Ouch, if you can't say amen, say ouch. I told you I was going to chase a rabbit for a second. There are some, listen, when Paul said, hey, honor the king. Do you know who the king was when he wrote that? Nero. Biden's not as bad as Nero. I just want to throw that out as an objective statement this morning from the pulpit. He's not. I just want to give you a heads up on that. I've not seen Christian bodies impaled on stakes down the street to be used as lamps at nighttime yet. Okay. And while that was going on in the first century, Paul wrote to the people who had watched their family and friends die and said, honor the king. Why? Because the king in the office is doing a great job and honoring the Lord. Absolutely not. Because God has given certain institutions to have authority and or to be worthy of honor and respect. And one of those is parenthood. Honor, revere your mother and your father. For you older folks who still have parents who are still living. Honor and revere. It doesn't stop just because you don't live with them anymore. Honor them. Even when they're wrong, honor them. You say, but it's hard to honor somebody when they're doing stuff that's wrong. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be separate, set apart, distinct, different from everyone else. It's really easy to be like the rest of the world and hate and despise people who are doing wrong things. Because what does Jesus do with this text? And we'll get to this in a moment. What does he do with this text of Leviticus 19? Love your, you've heard it say, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, and he turns it on its head. Love those who despise you. Do good to those who hate you and persecute you. That's holy. All right, done chasing the rabbit. Okay, so 
What does this look like? So you, you shouldn't have idolatry. You should honor your family. You should keep the Sabbaths. When you're a, a farmer, you should leave some of your resources for those who are in need. You shouldn't mix different kinds of cattle together. You shouldn't mix different kinds of seeds together. You shouldn't mix different kinds of garments together. You shouldn't have inappropriate relationships with servants and with slaves. When you go into the land that you're going to get, you should allow the fruit of the land to be purified for three years, declared holy on the fourth year, and then you can eat it on the fifth year. There should be no eating of blood. There should be no divination. There should be no soothsaying. You shouldn't harm the corners of your beard. My wife is very delighted that we live in the new covenant so that I can harm the corners of my beard on a regular basis because this is already a little too long for her. You should have no cuts or tattoos for false gods or for dead people. I know some of you in here have tattoos and you're a little nervous of what I'm going to say about this right now. Just know that I served at another church and the entire time that I was there. Somehow they were convinced that I had a tattoo. And they were kept, they kept, there was like a bet going. Where is it? And what is it of? Like that was the conversation that they were having. It was remarkable. I just want to throw this out in the new covenant reality. So long as your tattoo wasn't an act of idol worship, you're probably okay. Just want to throw that out there for whatever that's worth. In fact, you probably would have been okay in Leviticus because this was in the particular context of for the dead and for idolatry. Don't have mediums, don't have spiritists. Honor, and I love how Moses makes the distinction here in this, in this law. Honor the gray-haired and the aged, because they're not always the same person. She's laughing because I still don't consider myself aged, but I've had gray hair for a long time. So stand up before the gray-haired and the aged, because there's some aged people who don't have gray hair. I envy those people. I do. I, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. How do, how do you do it? You know, John Stamos comes to mind. Anyway, uh, he's like 87 years old. He looks like he's 23. So be good to the stranger, the foreigner who's in your land. Listen, we, we can have a lot of different sociopolitical conversations about strangers in a foreign land. And Christians genuinely can have a lot of different opinions about issues like immigration and all kinds of things like that. But for the believer, at least those who are embracing the reality of what the word says in the Old Testament. One aspect of holiness is how you treat the stranger. No matter where that stranger is from or why that stranger is there. Because notice, this text doesn't give us a whole lot of insight as to why that stranger or foreigner is in this land that they're being promised to have. Hey, you're going into this land and here's the laws. And you're going to have some people who aren't part of your nation and they're going to show up and they're going to be a part of what's going on. And here's how you need to treat them. You need to love them and you need to be kind to them. Regardless of the policies of things, as a human being made in the image of God, you need to be kind to them. It's a pretty good policy. And then you need to have fair measurements. Don't rip people off. All right, so this is what it looked like in Leviticus 19. 
Now, I want us to turn our attention to, as we have been doing through all the weeks that we've been going through Leviticus, and seeing this picture, seeing this reality in the New Testament. What does the New Testament have to say about this? Well, friends, the New Testament has a lot to say about this. We're not going to go through all of these cross-references this morning, but we're going to pull some principles from the New Testament and try to make application. Now, uh, I've listed here several cross-references. Again, we're not going to walk through all of them. The, the Matthew 5 one is from the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, 43 and following. You don't have to turn there. But that's where Jesus turns the whole thing on its head. And he says, listen, you've heard it say, uh, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. By the way, there's not an Old Testament verse that says hate your enemy. That was a tradition of man that was added in and an inference from some of the things that happened in the Old Testament. But there's not actually a command listed anywhere in the Old Testament that says hate your enemy. And those of you who have those really cool cross-reference Bibles where they take direct Old Testament quotes and they make them all kind of small capitalized letters and give you a mark to tell you where to go look it up. You'll see that love your neighbor is indeed a direct quote from the Old Testament. We just read it, Leviticus 19.18. Hate your enemy, regular print, because it's not in there. Can't find it. So Jesus says, all right, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, do good to those who despise you. And he walks through this idea of actually loving your enemy. That's Matthew 5. I want you to turn, though, to Mark 12. Let's let's take a look at this one. This is a classic one. This is one I've made reference to already. But I want you to turn over to Mark 12. And we're going to look at verse 29 through 31. Mark 12, 29 through 31. Go ahead and put a... Okay. All right. So Mark chapter 12, verse 29 through 31. There was an argument with some scribes and and some... Some of the people who are who are teachers of the law. All right. And so and so listen, I have a lot of friends who are lawyers. I have a lot of friends who are scholars. You get a bunch of scholars and lawyers in a room together. There's somebody going to have an argument about something like that's just a given because that's what they've all been trained to do. And if they're not doing that, then something really they're watching a sporting event. If they're not arguing about something, they're watching a sporting event. And so or they're arguing about the sporting event. And so and so here come the scribes. The lawyers are there. People are asking Jesus these questions. And 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 they ask the question, what commandment is the foremost? Verse 28. What's the most important commandment? And Jesus answered them. The foremost is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. That is the foremost. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. That is the foremost commandment. Hear me this morning. If you love any person more than you love God, it's idolatry. Foremost commandment is not to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not. The foremost commandment is to love God with your whole being. That is the foremost commandment. And the second is like it. There is a second place commandment in Jesus' mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 There is no other commandment greater than these. It is the summation of... Of all of the law. 
Those two commandments. That's it. Those two commandments. And there's a great value for us to see how Jesus uses this. For those who were traditionally and in an orthodox way following the Jewish religion, particularly in the first century, there were 613 commands that formally they were supposed to follow and a host of traditions of men that they were supposed to follow that elaborated on how those commands were to be lived out in their lives. And so it could be a trap question, maybe, but it could be a a question from earnestness. Hey, all these commands, all this stuff, all these traditions, what's the most important thing? Like if I'm really going to order my life in a way that's pleasing to God, what is the most important thing? And Jesus, in essence, answers, love God and love people. That's it. How profoundly simple that sounds. And how incredibly difficult it actually is to live out. Because the immediate follow-up question I would have is, okay, great, love God, love people. How? What kind of things do I do to show that I love God? And what kinds of things do I do to show that I love people? Because not all expressions of loving God actually fall into the category of really loving God, even if I think that they do. And then there's a lot of religions in the world where your love for God clearly shows that you don't love people. I think of some of our jihadist friends who claim that their love for God drives them to kill people. Or if we don't want to shift religions in the Middle Ages during the Crusades. Christians, we got to own that one. That's part of our history. Hey, you know what? If you want immediate entrance into heaven, we have this decree that says if you sign up for one of these crusades and you go and you kill a whole bunch of people and you die in the effort to like spread the gospel through warfare, then you get direct access into the presence of God. That sounds like you're really loving God the right way. It sure doesn't sound like you're loving those people the right way. So while this sounds incredibly simple, the way that I answer it can become really complicated. So I probably, because I'm a dumb sheep, (laughs) I probably need a little more information than just love God, love people. Or I might really mess it up. I might really twist it and do something wrong with it. And so there's some other texts, and I want you to flip over and look at this one in Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, Owe nothing to anyone... Except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment. It's summed up with this one saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19. 18. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. And now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. 
The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and sensuality and strife and jealousy. But instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So Paul kind of breaks it down a little bit. He starts talking about not being selfish, not being self-centered, not being self-focused, but being concerned less about my happiness, less about my pleasure, less about the fulfillment of my desires, and more concerned with what is actually the most beneficial thing for the other. That's loving your neighbor. Even if it means sacrifice for me, Because if you keep going through the rest of Romans, it's built on this concept of loving your neighbor in this way. And then he starts talking about issues of conscience and meat and wine and all kinds of other things and stuff that you might choose to not participate in so that somebody else's conscience isn't hurt, even though you have freedom and you give up your freedom for somebody else's well-being. And there's all sorts of things that Paul starts to unpack after this principle of, hey, you need to love your neighbor. Here's ways you can do that. We're not going to walk through it this morning, but list it here in your bulletin. If you want it to go to 1 Corinthians, all of chapter 8, 9, and 10 has a reference to loving your neighbor in that text. And the whole of those three is built on the notion of here are ways you can love your neighbor. And a lot of it has to do with self-sacrifice. A lot of it has to do with, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to participate in that. Even though I could, I'm not because I want to do the things that are going to benefit the other person. So let's kind of walk through them. I want to pull some principles without like reading the entire New Testament. I want to pull some principles together from the New Testament about this notion of being holy, loving God and loving people. So first, what does it mean to be holy? The word holy means to be separate or distinct. It means to be different from. It means to be set aside for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose is usually a purpose of of godliness or for the divine. So how is it that we are to be different? How is it that we are to be separate? How is it that we are to be distinct? Well, the first step that we see in Leviticus 19 that's unpacked for us in in a fuller way in the New Testament is to love God. Now, how do I properly love God? Now, I want you to note that the answer to that question, how do I properly love God? Gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of ink has been spilled on pages upon pages upon pages of books and libraries talking about how do I love God correctly. So I'm going to attempt to summarize the right steps for that in about 45 seconds. So here we go. It's weighty, it's heavy, I know, but let's try it. How do I love God correctly? You love God correctly Through Christ and Christ alone, no other access point, by means of the truth of what the gospel is, that you are a sinner separated from God because of your sin, and Christ has come and filled the gap 
through his holiness and righteousness and perfection and keeping of the law so that you who had no access to God might now have access to God. And once you now receive access to God through Christ and his gospel, you show that you love God through the normal, regular means of grace. That's it. That's how you love God. Say, Philip, it sounds way too easy. Praise God. Because if it got much more complicated than that, none of us would be able to actually live in it. Love God through Christ and his gospel by ways of the normal means of grace. Corporate worship, prayer, the study of the word, the sacraments, sorry, Baptist, the ordinances. That's what you do. You come to church, you read the word, you pray, you hold each other accountable in community, you share the Lord's table and the baptismal waters together. Love God. So, Philip, is it really that? Yes, it's really that. Praise be to the Lord from what we saw in Leviticus 1 through 6 with all of the stuff about the sacrifices and how they work and how they didn't work and who was supposed to eat it and who wasn't supposed to eat it and what you're supposed to do with the blood and the refuse and the kidneys and the lobes and the liver and all that kind of... Love God through the person of Christ and His gospel by the normal means of grace. That's how you love God. Amen. And then when you love God correctly, love people. Well, how do I do that? I would venture to guess because the world is a lost world and a lot of people in the world don't care anything about loving God. That even more ink on more pages has been spilled on what it means to love people. And I just want to tell you, most of it's wrong. Because it doesn't come from a perspective of loving God. Therefore, you have no idea how to love people. So how do you love people? Friends, there are a host of ways. Hear me this morning. There are a host of ways to show that you love people. It's not as easy to contain as what I just said about loving God. But the way that is often ignored and overlooked and forgotten, that is vastly more important than almost any other way, is by way of self-sacrifice. When it is hard for you, but good for them. Think about what we just read in Leviticus. When you are harvesting your field, it's your field. Let's go ahead and talk about Leviticus 19 as if all the people in that time when they first heard it were hardcore deep South Americans. Okay. But it's my field. I tilled that field. I planted that field. I harvest that field. I help that crop grow. I help those animals stay alive. That's my field. Nobody come get stuff off my field. I know you're right. It's your field. And it's your animal and it's your harvest. And it's yeah, da, da, da. Don't harvest your whole field. Leave some of it for somebody else. But they didn't work my field. If they want to eat food from my field, then you come work my field. And they pull themselves by a bootstrap and then you can do some work. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. But it's hard for you. Self-sacrifice. It's good for them. Yeah, but why are they in the state that they're in? What bad choices did they make? I don't want to encourage bad choices in somebody else's life by promoting their laziness. Okay, it doesn't say anything about that. It says, don't harvest your whole field. 
Leave some for somebody else. But I need more information. No, you don't need more information. But this is driving me nuts. Then praise God that it's driving you nuts. I feel like I'm sacrificing too much. You know, not as much as Jesus. This is going to be a hard sermon. It gets, it gets harder from here. I just want to warn you. Especially when we come to the notion of what love actually is. In the words of the great philosopher of my day, Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? We're going to find out what love's got to do with it today. There's a host of ways. But friends, our culture has a devastating dismissal of the biblical concept of love. We do not understand what the scripture has to say about love. We treat love as a fleeting thing. We treat love as a thing outside of our control. We treat love like it's some sort of disease that we might catch or some disease that we might be cured of at any moment. We use the classic statement, especially in the dissolution of relationships. I fell out of love with her or I fell out of love with him. Friend, love isn't a hole that you fall into or that you climb out of. That's not what love is. And our culture has devastated the understanding and meaning of biblical love. We have this really warped Greco-Roman notion of love. It's some overwhelming force in the universe that we have no control over. That's not love. It's not what love is. It's not anywhere remotely close to what love is. I loved him the first minute I saw him. No, you didn't. You were enamored with him. You thought he was attractive. There's a different word for that. It's called lust. Ouch. I know. I told you it's going to get worse. Love is not this flood of a feeling that you can't control. That's not what love is. Love is a choice that you make. The reason there was a light mumble there is because we don't buy that. We don't buy that love is a choice that we make. But friends, biblically speaking, love is a choice that you make. But God demonstrated Proved beyond all reasonable doubt, made the active, willful, divine choice. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, enemies against him, Christ died for us. It's not something that flooded over the divine being that he couldn't control. Oh, I just love these people. Send Jesus to die for them. No, it was a choice that the divine being made for us. He was intentional about it. He looked out on broken humanity and he said, according to my wisdom and my will, I will sacrifice my son to deliver these people from the sin that they have been trapped in by their own doing. That's love. Love's a choice that we make. And it's a choice that is commanded by God. God commands us. To love, to love him and to love our neighbors. We're to have love for God. 
We're to have love for those who are closest to us. And according to the New Testament, we're even to have love for our enemies. By the way, you can't have this modern warped definition of love and say that you love your enemies. Oh, I just fell in love with my enemies. No, no. You choose to love people who hate you. You don't fall into that. I was just so overwhelmed by my love for the people who are trying to kill me. No, no. It's a choice you make. Friends, what if instead of saying, I just don't love you anymore, or I fell out of love with you. Instead, we said, I am choosing to rebel against God's call of holiness in my life by making the sinful choice to not love you the way that Christ has commanded me to, because I'm more concerned with my personal happiness and well-being than the holiness that God demands of me because I bear his name. Yeah, ouch, right. I told you it just keeps getting worse. What if we talked about it like that instead? What if when you're sitting across the table with people, counseling them through relationship problems, whatever kind of relationship it may be. I just don't love them anymore. It's like, oh, no, 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 I need you to repeat after me. I'm choosing to violate God's revealed will for my life and making the sinful choice of not loving this person the way Christ has commanded me so that I no longer bear the holiness of those who have the name of Jesus on them. What if that's how we did it? But instead, what do we do in our culture, even our church culture? When people have the audacity to say about other people, I just don't love them. I don't love them anymore. I don't care about them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. That is sinful and wretched. Because love's a choice you make. Love is a choice that you make. Now. Don't use this as an out. But I praise and thank God regularly. That nowhere in the scripture does it say I have to like a lot of people. And there's some relationships that you see between Paul and other people in some of his letters. They clearly still loved each other in Christ. They didn't like each other as much as they did before whatever happened happened. To the point that at one notion, they say, hey, listen, maybe you should go do missions in Asia and I'll do missions in Europe for a little while. And we'll get back together later. Still love you. Hope Jesus does great things through you over there. But we need a couple thousand miles apart from each other. Occasionally that happens. That's real. But friends, here's the problem with most of us. Is we can't actually make that separation. It's incredibly rare for you to have a person that you deeply don't like who you simultaneously say, I have the great love for Christ for. And Paul himself in the New Testament had to repent of some of that a few times. How can you say, as it says in the scripture, that you love God whom you have not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? James says that can't be done. It can't be this way. It can't be like that. It can't do that. Why is it that the first great command is to love God? The second great command is to love people. Because, friends, if you love God, God is pure. 
God is right. God is perfect. God is holy. God is compassionate. God is loving. God is long suffering with us. God is gracious to us. He is good to us. He displays mercy to us. He forgives us. He redeems us. He delivers us. He sent his son for us. God has done all that is needed for us to be aware of the great love that he has for us. And he has demonstrated through his word and creation of all of the reasons why we should have great love for him. And we start with the greatest commandment of loving God with every aspect of our being. And when we do that, we have no choice or excuse but to set our love on our neighbor. Because if God can love someone like me. And all the things that were wrong with me. And all the ways that my image bearing was displeasing to the true image of God. And all the ways that I should have been cast out and separated from the divine presence and divine love because of what Christ has done for me. If God can love a wretched, broken sinner like me, I guarantee you I can look across the aisle and love you. Because God did not have to love me. And he did it anyway. To set up for me the greatest example of what it means to be holy. The greatest picture of what it means to truly be holy is when I look across at someone who's just as unworthy as I am, who has given me all the reasons in the world not to love them, and I make the same choice that God made for them, that God made for me, and I say, I will love you. Even if you hate me, even if you despise me, even if you have no desire for anything in my well-being, I will look at you as one made in the image of God and I will borrow from the grace of God this good love that he has for me and I will extend that same love to you. That, friends, is how you live in holiness. Because that's not what the world does. That's not what the lost man does. That's not what the broken, fallen societies of this earth do. They don't look across at the other and say, you know, I have a lot of reasons to hate you, but I'm going to love you anyway. Friends, when God looked across the chasm of eternity from his great throne room above and he looked at the brokenness that is sinful humanity, he had a lot of reasons to hate us. A lot of reasons to put his wrath on us. A lot of reasons to crush us under the weight of our sin. And it says, yet he demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Jesus looks at us and says, you do the same thing. You do the same thing. This text in Leviticus 19 with all of its sundry laws and all of the different things and the stuff about parents and idols and Sabbath keeping and grain and this and that and the other. Friends, it is a pointing to a greater synopsis and the greater synopsis is this. Love God. Love God. And when you love God, you must, not you should, you must love people. That's it. 
I want to know how to be holy. Love God. And love people. So easy to say. So incredibly hard to do. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for challenging things like this. That call us to rethink everything about our notions of love. Father, you have shown us love, love that we are not worthy of, love that we do not deserve, love that should not be ours. And you have called us as your people to be holy the same way that you are holy. And Father, one of the greatest displays of your holiness is that you love the unlovely. You love the unlovable. That is us. And when you transform us and when you fill us with your spirit and when you begin to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus, you call out to us to love the unlovely. And Father, I pray this morning that you'll forgive us for embracing false notions of what it means to love. Father, that you will cause us to stop treating love as some overwhelming feeling, as some force that we can't control, and that we will view love appropriately as a choice that we make in righteousness through the strength of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, cause us to love you well. Father, cause us to love ourselves well. Cause us to love our neighbor well. Father, cause us to love our enemies well. And Father, forgive us when we make a mockery of your holiness by claiming that we love you when in fact we hate those around us. For Father, we cannot love a God that we have not seen while we hate our brother that we have. Father, we pray for your grace and your glory to be manifest in our lives as we make much of Jesus by loving you and loving the people around us. In Christ's name, amen.